You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. China has represented opportunity since its dramatic openings in the 1970s. It was a geopolitical opportunity for the United States to divide the two communist powers and gain advantage. Henry Kissinger, who was national security advisor to President Nixon, described how the establishment of diplomatic contacts with China gave the United States leverage in its arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union, for example. The real breakthrough came, and in that sense there was leverage, when we opened to China. And when the Soviets suddenly realized that we had a bigger canvas to paint on than they had calculated. And after that, a lot of the negotiations that had been started accelerated. This relationship was valued as well by the Carter administration, which established diplomatic relations between Washington and Beijing. Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, put China in the context of global confrontation with Moscow. Uh, We were certainly important in normalizing relations with China which created a new geostrategic situation in which the Chinese and we were able to collaborate more confidently in offsetting what at that time was a rather aggressive, ambitious Soviet Union. But of course, it was also about economic opportunity. On the one hand, for China itself, hundreds of millions of people have escaped poverty as a result of economic growth in the 40 years since Deng Xiaoping's reforms began in 1979. And American and other Western companies benefited from these reforms as well, investing hundreds of billions of dollars in the Chinese economy, Germany included. As an example, the CEO of Volkswagen recently said that, quote, the future of Volkswagen will be decided in the Chinese market, unquote. German business has been, over the years, one of the strongest voices for engagement with China. The other opportunity was more elusive and was driven by a desire to see change in the Chinese political and economic systems, more open, a stronger rule of law, and a more constructive Chinese role in international affairs. This was the hope that China would become a responsible stakeholder in the world and see its interest increasingly in preserving and expanding the open liberal order. That desire is increasingly seen as illusory, certainly since the presidency of Xi Jinping. The Chinese state is reasserting its preeminent role, and Beijing is pursuing an ambitious foreign policy and a strengthened military capacity, such that the United States now describes China as a, quote, near-peer competitor. It includes the massive Belt and Road Initiative, with pledges of $1 trillion in Chinese money for infrastructure and transportation investment to bring Chinese goods to the world. By the way, annual Chinese outward investment now exceeds foreign investment into China. The changing Chinese economic and political role has been raising concerns in Europe, as in the United States, and European countries have been instituting stricter screening of Chinese investments in strategic sectors, while also fighting back against Chinese state subsidies and the continuing problems of intellectual property theft and technology transfer. Against that backdrop, a new report by the Federation of German Industries describes China as a systemic competitor and calls for German and European leaders to rise to this challenge through stronger measures at home and internationally. The Federation, which represents 35 sectors of the German economy, is very influential in Germany, and so their 54 recommendations carry particular weight. This week on The Zeitgeist, 
Peter Rashish and I talk with Stefan Meyer, who is a member of the board of the Federation of German Industries, to discuss the evolving German view toward China and what it means for cooperation at the European level and with the United States. Please join us. We're here today with Stefan Meyer, who is a member of the executive board of the Federation of German Industries. Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff. And we are always glad to have smart people like Stefan come by and have the opportunity for a conversation. But the particular reason for today's discussion is a policy paper that the Federation of German Industries, also known as the BDI, recently released. And I'd like to read the full title because it gives a sense of what uh, we're talking about. And the title is Partner and Systemic Competitor. How do we deal with China's state-controlled economy? Now, this is a very serious document that I would recommend everybody have a look at. It's at the BDI website, bdi.eu. Um, and so, first of all, congratulations, Stefan, um, because if I understand correctly, you were leading um, the work uh, on this uh, on this paper um, if from the start until the end. I was not the chief editor, but uh, I was involved in, <laughs> in okay. doing it. <laughs> well, that's that's modestly put. Uh, and we're also especially glad that you're here in Washington to talk with us uh, today. The the paper was released just a little bit less than two weeks ago, yeah. and and so it is a wonderful thing from our perspective that you're here in Washington talking to counterparts about what what these recommendations mean. If I could start with one question, do you do these kinds of papers often? Is this a frequent Occurrence. How big a deal is it? It was a bigger deal uh, because uh, I think we do policy papers, um, but not on this very general uh, level, uh, more on concrete issues. And I would also say that most of our papers are by far less provocative than this was uh, because mm -hmm. we picked up very controversial issues in this paper. And uh, you certainly know that all our policy papers uh, need the agreement, the consent of our member associations, 35 of them. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that the process in really finalizing such a paper means many adjustments. It means sometimes to meet a, a minimum consensus. And and this is by far going beyond a minimum yeah. consensus. I think that's absolutely right. I and mean, this is no small undertaking. So maybe, uh, Stefan, if you could tell us uh, what you consider to be the most important outcomes um, from, from this uh, paper. I think first it is the awareness and the realization that uh, what we can observe in China right now is not a convergence to our system of market economy, of liberalism, but the consolidation of a system of their own, a system which very much relies uh, on the central role of the single party, uh, which uh, has uh, many competences um, uh, many responsibilities, uh, which steers both society and economy. Uh, and what we see, I've seen in the past two or three years, are major efforts to consolidate and not to change the system. And as there is a different system with which we really interact in many ways, uh, for Germany, it's the biggest, uh, it's the third biggest trading partner. It's a major investment location for German companies. We have to think about how do we mm -hmm. react to these changes and uh, how do we prepare our own system to deal with this and how do we de define interfaces between two different systems. And I think this is the main um, um, element of, of the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that there is 
a growing concurrence between Germany in this paper and the United States view um, uh, on the diagnosis. You know, how is China developing and is it, uh, as you say, is it converging um, or is it consolidating? And, and, and it seems that both in, this, in the United States and in Germany, the judgment seems to be it's the second. It's, it's consolidation. Uh, China is, is not going to change. Mm. I think certainly with regard to diagnosis, we are very close to each other. I think also with regard to objectives uh, we have, uh, how to deal with, with China. Uh, the open question is, do we agree on the means to use how to deal with China? And there, I think we have some divergence. Yeah. And that's that of course, becomes the important question. What do we do about it? If we both agree on uh, what's happening in China, then what are the steps that the United States should take, that Germany should take, or the European Union. And and so um, uh, I think that is the first thing that struck me in, in reading the paper and in the discussions we've had, uh, is that your objective in this paper is not to try to change China. Mm. Um, it is basically accepting China for what it is. Why is that? Is that because you think China's too big to influence and it basically can't be changed through outside action? I think it's there are two things. One, certainly, it's it's too big. It's uh, we as Europeans, we can't China, change China. And I think even the Americans can't change uh, uh, China. But there seems also be a fairly broad consensus in China about the system. Uh, it's not that you can see so many dissidents uh, in China wanting to change the system at. Mm-hmm. In, in general, there are some right. criticism um, with one or the other aspects of the system, but not really a strong movement putting the system into question. And for me, there seems to be a very broad consensus supporting the system. It has, of course, also many successes to show about. Uh, I think the growth rates you have seen in China is certainly also a success of, of, of the system. Right. So. There's no strong movement against the system. So I think we, we have to accept the domestic choice of mm-hmm. the Chinese people, which seems to ha- have the system. And uh, and we have to take this as, uh, as given. And then, um, as I said, uh, to draw our consequences on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So instead, you suggest that Germany and the European Union should strengthen their own abilities to compete with China, right? That's the main focus of the report? Yeah, I think we have uh, three, no, four chapters. Uh, The first one, and and, and this really reflects also the priority we set, that is the first chapter is about strengthening the competitiveness of Europe by investing in the infrastructure, by putting more money into research and innovation, um, by um, uh, investing in education uh, universities uh, and to become more competitive. We are very much concerned that we are more and more lagging behind in some really essential areas of industry, especially artificial intelligence. I think uh, when you have the opportunity to visit one or the other Chinese company dealing with this, you're quite impressed what they are doing. And I think um, certainly they're almost on the same level as as, as United States, and Europe is lagging behind. So we have, I think, to do some homework to get more competitive in some areas. We are still very competitive in That's really right. many areas, but uh, we have to do more and, and improve on that. Mm-hmm. 
And then secondly, and, and, uh, and, and as I said, the, the order of the chapters somehow reflects also our priorities. Uh, we say that uh, we as Germany, being the biggest economy in the European Union, are nevertheless too small to deal on our own with, with China. We need the European Union speaking with a united voice and, and dealing with China as one unit. And, uh, and this is also very important. And uh, then if I kind of go on with the third chapter, there we talk about more defensive instruments, how we can protect our system against interference, negative interference by the other system. Right. Um, talking about investment screening, about uh, anti-subsidy uh, instruments, uh, anti-dumping um, uh, instruments, and so on. And the last chapter is then dealing with the international um, uh, level, uh, talking about uh, who might be like-minded par partners in dealing with China, how can we reform um, the multilateral system, what can we do plurilaterally on, on many aspects. So this, this is somehow... Mm -hmm. the last if if i could you know take one element of that and you know it's an assumption isn't it that germany will remain um actively engaged uh with china economically i mean to 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 draw it out i think you say in the report that decoupling is not an option now there are some people in the united states who think that decoupling is uh, perhaps a good idea uh for the united states and china that is for the for in the interest of the united states mm -hmm. not everyone shares that view but i think it's fair to say you reject that idea out of hand yeah absolutely because uh, i think we've we been benefited a lot from china's economic development uh, when you look at uh, german companies which have invested in China, uh, which are doing trade with China, um, we gain a lot from from this. And uh, the interlinkages are so strong that, from my point of view, and I think many others in, in Germany and most others would, would share this, uh, a decoupling of China uh, is, as I said, not an option. Uh, it would uh, create uh, really massive economic damage um, uh, to the German economy. Uh, so we have to think about how we, as I said, can define the right interfaces with a different system and mm -hmm. how can we deal with the system. All that you're describing, more in investment in research and development and new technologies in, in, in education, all, that, all those things are going to cost money. Uh, they wouldn't have to all be done by Germany. As you say, some of it could be done by the European, at the European Union level, but some of it would be. Uh, a German national response. Uh, does that suggest that uh, the German inclination towards balanced budgets might need a little bit of a rethink if it's in, in, in that a little bit of a longer term view and, and the, on the value of investments is, is needs to have a higher, a, a higher place in, uh, in the thinking? No, I think this is certainly not the measure we would start with. Uh, first, we look at the European budget and you, we are just discussing um, uh, the midterm um, um, uh, European budget, uh, and you, when you look at it, you see still a great part of money going to agricultural and agricultural mm -hmm. subsidies. And we say clearly that this is not a future-oriented budget. Right. When you put right. really great part of this budget and invest in innovation and research, you will certainly have another outcome. Uh, and the same, I think, is due when you look at uh, is it the case when you look at the at the German budget. Uh, we still think that it makes a lot of sense for a 
demographically aging country to have a balanced budget. Um, uh, and of course, we see also in the German budget more need for investment in infrastructure and things like that. But this certainly can be balanced by reducing some of our social expenditure, which we has really increased in the past six, seven years tremendously. So it's a question of different priorities, not necessarily more spending. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that struck me also in the report is the emphasis, in some cases, on national measures Germany should take, but that a lot of the solutions you propose are really uh, solutions that would take place at the European Union level. Um, and maybe this is in part an answer to that question about whether you know more Europe or smarter Europe is the answer to the problems Europe is facing. At least when it comes to dealing with China, it seems your answer is yes, we need a stronger, more capable European Union that's able to, to sort of act um, as a, uh, you know, at, at an equal level uh, with the Chinese economically. There's a strong commitment and also a strong consensus in German industry about having a stronger, more active Europe. Uh, we have always emphasized that, even in the very critical phase of the Eurozone, Eurozone crisis, as uh, some demands were coming up to exclude, for example, the Greece or the Greek or the Italians from the Eurozone, where we mm -hmm. really constantly emphasized that the integrity of the Eurozone is in the strong interest of German industry. And German industry considers the European single market as its home market. It's really gained a lot in the past 20 years from creating the single market. And from our point of view, any further step in completing the single market, in uh, developing and also giving the European Union more competences in this, is from our point of view uh, a priority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The European Union has demonstrated uh, you know, impressive unity on some issues, like Brexit, for example, uh, the 27 members. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the European Union, you see this 16 plus 1 initiative where China gets together with some Central and Eastern European uh, countries, some that are members of the EU, some that are not. Um, do you think that that kind of unity uh, within the EU on China is something we can realistically expect in the future? I'm, I'm quite confident that this is the case because I think when you look at the real strategic issues uh, we were confronted with uh, in, in, in Europe but also internationally, the European Union was able to define a common position and, 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 and to maintain it. When you look at the sanctions um, uh, with Russia, uh, despite all the discussions, the internal discussions that we have, it's still a unified European position. When you That's look right. at, yeah. at Brexit, uh, even a more critical uh, uh, case, the EU27 uh, acted uh, quite unified on, on, on this. Much to the surprise of London, I would yes, say. Yes, much <laughs> to the surprise and perhaps also frustration of London. Um, uh, and also when you look at uh, the trade controversy we have with, um, uh, with your administration right now, it's uh, a common position uh, maintained by the European Union. So I think the moment... The European countries realize that the challenge we are facing in our cooperation, our relationship to China, is on the same level as on Russia, Brexit, and and, and United States. Then I think it might be easier to to find a common position on that. Got it. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting also to uh, to observe that on the one hand, I think this growing 
seriousness in Germany and in Europe about the challenges China represents to uh, to us and uh, to uh, to the global economy uh, is very much in line with the way the Trump administration views the world, I would say, even if the details aren't the same. Um, but at the same time, this is an administration that is quite skeptical about supranational um, uh, solutions to problems. And this is an administration that's been very critical of the European Union. So so I think it's, uh, you know, there's an irony there for Americans who might be uh, excited that uh, Europeans are getting, you know, more more concerned and more active uh, in dealing with uh, uh, China, uh, that the solution is actually one that it means more of uh, this multinationality, more multilateral uh, solutions. Yeah, I think it's, I find it also always very difficult to, to, to defend and, and describe the relevance of the European Union to people, administrations, officials outside the European Union, uh, uh, be it Beijing or Washington. <laughs> it's the same in Be <laughs> Beijing. Uh, you're confronted with the same questions. And I still remember that we have um, uh, a regular annual meeting between German CEOs and uh, the congressional delegation to the Munich Security Conference. And um, uh, through the really, as I said, critical phases of Eurozone crisis, the American participants were convinced that the Eurozone would split up at the end because nobody's willing to bear the costs. And we tried to explain them right from the beginning, this won't happen, this mm -hmm. won't happen. The commitment is so strong on the German side, but also on the French side and other sides. Regardless what the costs might be, the Eurozone will, will stick together. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's very difficult um, for Americans to understand this, uh, but it can only be explained on the basis of, of, of European history. I think the, the still the repercussions of the Second World War are so strong that there is an overarching political um, uh, understanding that the European Union is necessary like it is and the only option to Europe. Yeah, that's right. I, I wanted to switch to one of the defensive measures you talked about, which is investment screening. Um, and and I think this, uh, you know, for many years, people thought about intellectual property rights and technology transfer as the critical issues when it came to China. And those issues still exist. But th this idea now that China is a source of outward investment, that, uh, that one needs to uh, be careful um, about uh, inward investment in our own economies coming from China as well as from other places, is in some ways a new, uh, a new element of the discussion. And uh, in that regard, uh, your policy recommendations um, are uh, rather um, cautious and modest. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about uh, how you look at investment screening? Yeah, I think one of the biggest concerns we have is that in our reaction on the Chinese challenges, we become ourselves more Chinese. That means that by defending ourselves against state intervention, we call for the German state or for the, any other European states to take an active role in our economy. And this is, from our point of view, f totally strong. We have to strengthen our own system. So you have to look at what investment screening at the end means. Uh, it means, of course, a straighter inference and involvement uh, of the state in core elements of a market economy. It affects uh, private property rights. Uh, it affects um, capital transfers core elements, yeah. as I said. Uh, and you have to check, is this really uh, based on a very deep fundamental um, um, reason to deal with this, like 
protecting national security. For that, we say, okay, that's fine. We, we are convinced that one of the core competencies of the state is to protect national security. But what else is it? And from our point of view, and we had this discussion in Europe, uh, it's certainly not to protect key technologies. This is a role a state shouldn't have in a market economy. A state mm-hmm. shouldn't define what key technologies are and try to protect them. Or, or to say that a specific industry must exist uh, in, China, in, in Germany yeah. unless there's a compelling national yeah. security reason uh, yeah. for it. Yeah. So we ask for a different orientation of investment screening, uh, an orientation which deals with state aid given to Chinese companies which try to take over European companies. We had uh, a case quite recently in Europe, uh, which is still disputed, but uh, dealt with by the European Commission, um, the takeover of Pirelli by a a Chinese company. And there is good reason to assume that Chinese state aid, Chinese subsidies, enabled the Chinese company to take it over, to pay a higher price than any other competitive, uh, competitor was able to, to, to pay. Right. And I think this is very much in line with our system of market economy to deal with this, with these challenges uh, that, uh, as I said, we have instruments, strong instruments, which can deal with state aid subsidies given to Chinese companies than taking over. So you want to have a balanced approach where some of the responsibility is placed on investment screening, but also a lot of it is placed on competition policy. Exactly. And it seems, if I get it right, you would also there like the EU to be able to have a stronger role to be able to take into account not just subsidies at the European level, but also to have your European competition law be able to take into account subsidies coming from outside yeah. of, of the European Union, right? We have a very strong internal uh, uh, system of state aid control, any kind of uh, subsidies given by European governments to European companies uh, are scrutinized by, uh, by the system, and, uh, and we have very strong criteria to check whether this is legitimate or not. And we think there is good reason to apply this uh, to um, um, Chinese subsidies to Chinese companies being active in the European market. Mm-hmm. Is, is there also a problem, though, of the Chinese, uh, of many uh, of the steps taken inside the Chinese economy being rather opaque and and difficult to identify and to prove from the outside. Do you think it's feasible to have that kind of a mechanism in Europe? Um, can, you, can you really know those things about the state-owned uh, and state-influenced enterprises? I think it... At the end, it will be very difficult to prove. And, 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 and again, here the Pirelli case might be a very interesting one. Uh, but this can't be a reason not to try it. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and we have the same um, discussion with regard to our trade defense instruments anti-dumping uh, law. And you probably know that the commission compiled a very comprehensive and from my point of view, very serious report on uh, market forces, market behavior, in certain critical uh, branches, sectors in, in, in China, being the basis for anti-dumping uh, mm-hmm. cases. And I think a similar instrument would help a lot uh, with regard to anti-subsidy um, uh, instruments uh, to prepare the basis for this kind of cases and to really make a thorough uh, analysis of how is the market uh, distorted in China by state intervention, mm-hmm. what we, can we assume based on official Chinese reports. And um, um, this is very, I think, 
this is accessible and this could be the basis for this kind of, um, of instrument. Stefan, uh, the U.S. and the EU both have cases uh, before the World Trade Organization having to do with uh, Chinese intellectual property and technology transfer practices. So that leads me to wonder, what role do you think uh, either the WTO process or trade agreements, bilateral, plurilateral trade agreements have? What, what role can trade policy play uh, to help, uh, help achieve the objectives you're setting out in the paper? Mm. I think WTO, from our point of view, has to play a crucial role. Uh, here, the agreement itself is less the problem as the enforcement of one or the other uh, agreement. I think this is a right point of criticism always made by the Americans, mm -hmm. which we very much support that it's really the enforcement of, uh, of, of one or the other with the WTO rules. And I think here we have to get stricter and, 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 and uh, the Chinese have to be more, more transparent. Um, a short remark on... Um, on internet, uh, intellectual property rights because I was su quite surprised that um, recently uh, came across a report, business confidence survey made by the German chamber um, in, in China. And they asked what are the main impediments uh, for your business right. there. And um, intellectual property rights only ranked on the eighth uh, among the top tens. Mm -hmm. So it's it was quite surprising. So, and, and I, I, I quite often guess, get from German companies, yes, this is a real challenge, but somehow we can deal with it. And this mm -hmm. is very interesting. It, this, I wouldn't say that it's not important to demand changed international uh, intellectual property rights in, in China, but for many Chinese uh, German companies, it seems less a problem than, than, uh, than in an international discussion. Um, I don't have really a... a very thorough analysis why this is the case, but uh, I can only quote um, um, uh, uh, the findings of, of this report. Right. So let me ask a general question. What's the reaction been in Germany and uh, elsewhere to, to this policy paper? I think in the, by far the majority reacted quite positively on, 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 on this. Uh, we had very positive reactions from German government, from German parliamentarians, uh, either in the European Parliament or in the uh, in the German Parliament, um, we received also very positive comments from um, uh, from the international press on on, on this. Uh, we know that one or the other um, uh, big company being very active in China was probably not that happy that we were so critical in in, in many aspects. But I think we have also um, a different role to play. Uh, we as associations, federations, uh, which doesn't don't depend on um, um, access to certain markets, we can m be more open and frank about developments we see, and we have to play this role. Uh, so in, in general, the, pos uh, the reaction was very positive. Uh, of course, the Chinese were not excited. We have interest in discussion <laughs> um, uh, with uh, Chinese officials on, on, on that. But the, on the other hand, I think it helps a lot to, to be open and frank about these issues and try to find the basis of such an analysis solutions to those problems we certainly have. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, this, this contribution that, that you and BDI have made uh, to the transatlantic uh, discussion is extremely valuable. And uh, I want to thank you for uh, doing that work uh, and also for sharing it with us. So uh, we want to thank you for, for joining me and Peter Rashish today on the Zeitgeist. Uh, our producer is Jessica 
Reister Hart, and our theme music is adapted from work written by Frederick the Great. Thank you very much, and you, uh, great to have you here, Stefan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org slash podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Wiederhören.